was uh, a righteous non-Jew, and he was an advisor to King Pharaoh. And when Pharaoh called together his advisors to ask whether he should enslave the Jews, uh, one of his advisors, Yisro, said it was a bad idea. His other advisor, Bilam, said it was a great idea. And his third advisor, Job, abstained. He was afraid to offer an opinion. So Yisro had to leave Egypt because Pharaoh no longer liked him. And Bilam, of course, became his best friend. And Job lived out his life in Armenia and suffered terribly, but his faith was not affected. So he is a model of how you can suffer a lot and still not lose your faith in God. But that was the history of, uh, of Job. Another um, interesting thing is that uh, while, Yis- while Yisro was still good friends with Pharaoh, it happened one day that they found two little girls wandering in the streets. And they were both beautiful, gorgeous kids. Nobody knew who their parents were. So they were taken to the palace, and Pharaoh adopted one of them, and Yisro adopted the other one. I don't know if they were twins or just sisters. So the one that Pharaoh adopted eventually converted to Judaism and became Batya who uh, fished Moshe out of the water. And the other one, Yisro's daughter, the one he adopted, the sister, she became Tzipora. So one of the sisters saved Moshe from the water, the other sister married him. And that's probably why when Moshe had to run away from Egypt, Miriam. Sister. Miriam was a sister. Wife. Yeah, she was. Right, at least 12 years older. Mm-hmm. So, where did Moshe run when he had to leave Egypt? He ran to Midian. Uh huh. And in fact, she saved his life also. Because Yisra wanted to kill him. Yes? You know this or you don't know this? He was an escaped convict. So Yisra threw him into a dungeon. And that Zipporah snuck food into him. What is the meaning of Torah codes? How is a Jewish name reflected through the light of God? Is that the question? All right, what is the meaning of the Torah codes? 
the meaning of the Torah codes really goes back long before there were computers. Because there is a, a dimension of Torah. There's a, a, a part of Torah that is called remez. Every word in Torah hints at something other than what is literal, what its literal meaning is. In this, in this section of Torah, the sages came up with amazing codes that is, that is in the Torah, including what we call gematria. Gematria means every word is composed of letters. And the letters in Hebrew are also numbers. So Aleph is one, Bez is two, so on and so forth. So every word also has a numerical value. And in those numbers, there are all sorts of hints about things that are connected to each other because they have the same value, and so on. So the codes, before there were computers, was amazing. Because the sages remembered every letter in the Torah and could find codes hidden in the Torah without computers. For example, there's one commentary that is printed in every Chumash, and all he does is, this word, pick any word in the Torah, this word, it appears four times, here, there, and there, and the reason they all have the same word is because they're all connected. And he does it with every word in the Torah. So this word appears only once. This word appears three times. This word appears four times. One of the commentaries. The Balaturim. Yeah. So that's without a computer. The computers, unfortunately, are only good after the fact. After... Rabin was assassinated, they found it in the codes. They don't really find things before. Because they wouldn't know what they're looking at. So, it is not surprising that everything that happens in the world can be found somewhere in Torah. The reason that that's, that, that is so is because the Torah is the blueprint for creation. So nothing that happens in creation can happen unless it's in the blueprint. So everything that happens must have some reference or some mention in Torah in order for it to happen. Because what's not in the blueprint doesn't get built, doesn't happen. Why do bad things happen to good people? Wow. That is a very good question. I can hear you. It's such a classic. Let's, let's understand the question better, and that'll help us understand the answer. So here's the thing. Some people will tell you that bad things do not happen to good people because if bad things happen to someone, that proves that he was not such a good person. So, even the Holocaust 
They say it happened because the people were bad. And therefore, there's no question. God is good. He only punishes bad people. That is a terrible, horrible, nasty, and unholy attitude. The sages... The sages asked, why do the righteous suffer? So, it's not a silly question. Why do the righteous suffer? Which means, the righteous do suffer. Now, here's an important thing. If you want a different kind of an answer to the question. In English, we say, why do bad things happen to good people? The sages said, why do the righteous suffer? Sounds like the same question, right? But it's not. Let me show you the difference. Nothing bad ever happens. Period. Because this is God's world, and only God can make things happen. And if only God makes things happen, then nothing bad is going to happen. Because God doesn't do bad. What does bad mean? Listen, listen, listen. What does bad mean? Pain is not always bad. Labor pain is not bad. Death is not always bad. An old man, 98 years old, surrounded by his family, had a good life. He passes away in his sleep. Not bad. So what is bad? The only good definition is bad is something that happens that should not have happened. That's bad. Even in normal language, even in normal language, we say death, death is death. But wrongful death, oh, that's bad. Pain, pain is pain. But unnecessary, labor pain is great. False labor, that's bad. Right? Because we assume that it shouldn't happen. An operation is very painful. And dangerous. It's not bad. Unless it was supposed to be on somebody else. <laughs> and they did it on you. Then it's bad. Because that should not have happened. So bad means something that should not have happened. And in God's world, there is no such thing. Nothing happens that shouldn't have happened. Because God makes no mistakes, and nothing happens without God. So nothing bad can possibly happen to good people, bad people, or weird people. Hang on. So the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is not a legitimate question. Nothing bad happens. Pain happens. That's true. Suffering happens. That's true. But it's not bad. It's not unnecessary suffering. It's not suffering that should not have happened. So it's not bad. It's painful. Now, what are the sages saying when they ask, why do the righteous suffer? 
They're saying this. We know that it's not bad. We know that when the righteous suffer, it's not bad. But even so, we can't stand it. Why? Because it hurts. So we're not saying, this is wrong, it shouldn't happen. We're saying, this is right. But can't it stop? So even if it's right, it still bothers us. Because it hurts. And why should you be comfortable with somebody else's pain? Even if you know that it's okay. For example, there was a woman at Beis Hane years ago. She came from a cult. And she had converted to Christianity or whatever. I don't know what it was. Her parents were survivors. She came home and told her parents, now I know why Jews were being killed. Her parents just freaked out. Anyway, so she was sitting in class and she kept making these comments about Christianity and so on. I ignored her. So after a while, she got upset and she said, how come everybody else can ask questions? You don't answer me. I said, because I don't talk to anti-Semites. She says, anti-Semites? I'm Jewish. So part of the conversation was, I said to her, if, uh, if you were to hear that someplace in the world, in uh, Tasmania, Jews are being killed, God forbid. Would it bother you? She says, of course. I said, but would you understand why they're being killed? She said, yeah. I said, then you're an anti-Semite. It would bother you, but you would understand. Because we didn't accept, what's his name? So if you understand why Jews are being killed, you're an anti-Semite. The only people who understand why Jews are being killed are Nazis. If you also understand why Jews are being killed, then you're a Nazi. Okay? So, when people object in the English, and they say, why are bad things happening to good people? What are they objecting to? They're objecting to an injustice. This should not happen. Any human being, any decent human being, objects to injustice. You don't have to be particularly sensitive. What the sages were saying was much more sensitive. They were saying, there is nothing wrong happening. Nothing bad is happening. But it hurts. Can't we stop that? See, that's so much. We understand why the righteous need to suffer. But we're not comfortable with that. Exactly. Exactly. So even though there must be a good reason, we're still not comfortable with it. And whatever the good reason is, we, we, we ask God to stop it. Oh, that's being sympathetic with people's pain. So that's why the sages didn't say, why are bad things happening? 
Because bad things are not happening. Well, if bad things are not happening, then why do they have a problem with the righteous suffering? What's the problem? The problem is suffering. Not injustice. So, for example, a woman in labor pain, nothing bad is happening. So should we try to help take away the pain? Or who cares? It's okay. It's good. It is good. But if you can take away the pain, that's even better. So nothing bad is happening to righteous people. But pain is happening. Don't you want to take that away? Shouldn't you ask God to take away the pain? So... When Moshe came to Pharaoh and said, I'm here to tell you that we need to go, and Pharaoh got upset and made the, the, the work harder on the Jewish slaves. So Moshe comes back to God and says, why did you do this? What was he asking? Why are bad things happening? He knew what suffering was good for. We all know suffering is good for your soul. So what? We don't want to suffer. We don't want to see other people suffer. And that's why when Moshe said, why did you make it worse? What did God answer? Nothing. He didn't answer the question. He said, wait and see how the, I will take them out of Egypt. That was not the question. The question is, why did you make it worse? And God doesn't answer that question. Why? Because Moshe didn't want an answer. He didn't want an explanation. Oh, you see, I made it worse because it's so good for people when they go through difficulties. It makes them more mature. He didn't want to hear that. He was saying, stop the suffering. So God said, okay, I'm taking them out. That was the answer Moshe wanted to hear. He didn't want an explanation about the virtues of suffering. The same thing when the sages say, why do the righteous suffer? You think they want an answer? They don't want an answer. They just want the suffering to stop. And the same is when we ask the question. When people say, why was there a Holocaust? You really want to know? You really want to know why there's a Holocaust? And if you knew, would you then be comfortable? To a certain extent, it would comfort you. That would be terrible. You know that it happened for a reason. You can feel like at least that specific thing was accomplished. Knowing that it happened for a reason doesn't make it any more acceptable. Okay, so... So really, people who are... We don't think it's pointless. We think it's mysterious, not pointless. Here's the important thing. If knowing the reason would make it more acceptable, then you're not a nice person. Somebody once asked Ellie Wiesel, why was there a Holocaust? Of course, why he doesn't, he doesn't know any more than anybody else. Why do they ask him? Because he was there. 
So they asked him, why was it, huh? No. But they asked him, why was there a Holocaust? He said, I don't want to tell you. The guy said, you know why, but you don't want to tell me? He says, that's right. He said, why wouldn't you want to tell me? He says, because after I tell you, you will be a Nazi. He said, what? He says, if I tell you the reason, and you say, oh, okay, now you're a Nazi. So what is the virtue of knowing why there was a Holocaust? If it makes you more comfortable, if it makes you more comfortable, then you're a Nazi. If it doesn't make you any more comfortable, then what's the point? So, we don't want to know why. We just want it to never happen or undo it. We don't want to know why. Because no answer is going to make any difference in the world. Just like when Moshe said, why did you make it worse for the people? No answer would have satisfied him. He just wanted the suffering to end. Even if it had a good reason. So, that's what makes us good people. Not because we object to injustice. Injustice. Anybody objects to injustice. What makes us good people is that even if it's just, we object anyway because it hurts. That's called sympathetic. The question should be, how should we respond or what should we do when we see suffering? That's a good question. Ah, there is a difference when a person himself is suffering or he's seeing other people suffer. If a person is objecting because he's suffering, that's just human nature. When you object because other people are suffering, that's virtue. That's noble. That's, that's good. So when you object to other people's suffering, you're being moral, you're being good. When you object to your own suffering, you're just being human. There's nothing virtuous about it. So you have to have two different responses to your own suffering versus other people's suffering. For your own suffering, if you say, well, I guess I don't deserve any better than this, that's great. If you say that about other people, then you're a monster. You see somebody suffering, you say, well, I guess they don't deserve any better. That's horrible. So if you say it about yourself, you're a real mensch. If you say it about somebody else, you're disgusting. What is the virtue about saying it about yourself? Because the truth is that we are given a life for free. It's not like we deserve to live. Life is given for free. And everything that comes with it is given for free. So it's not like we can be outraged and complain that we're not getting what we deserve. We're getting more than we deserve. We're getting life. We don't deserve that. It's for free. 
So if a person says, I would have really preferred to be a lot more successful than I am, I would prefer to be a lot healthier than I am, I would prefer to have more than what I have, but I can't demand it, I don't deserve any more, and so I'm content. That's wonderful. That's a real mature mensch. On the other hand, when you look at other people's suffering, and you say, well, you know, they don't deserve any more, that's not nice. So when other people suffer, we should complain and object. When we suffer, we should be a mensch about it. So you got to be careful when you're talking about suffering. If you're talking about your own, it's a different story than if you're talking about somebody else's. So how do we handle our own suffering? What do you tell yourself? What should you tell yourself? Well, what happens is this. Why is it that some people, because of their suffering, because of their problems, get depressed and dysfunctional? And other people, who have exactly the same problem, are fine. How come? The difference between them... I said I wouldn't ask questions. The difference between them is this. It's not how much it hurts. And it's not how big the problem is. What makes people crazy is not pain and not suffering. What makes people crazy is the question, why me? Why me? That makes people crazy. And the proof of it is, any person who understands their own pain doesn't get depressed. We get depressed not from the pain and not from the problem. And that's why other people who have the same problem are not depressed. Other people who have bigger problems are not depressed. So it can't be the problem that makes you depressed. It's the question, why me? <clears throat> what is the question, my why me? The question is, what did I do to deserve this? Or, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And that's what makes me crazy. The truth is, who says you did anything to deserve it? Who says you're being punished? When you ask, why me? You're making it too personal. And because it becomes personal, it becomes depressing. If, on the other hand, instead of saying, why me? I don't deserve this. You say instead, so what do you want me to do? To God. Instead of asking God, why me? Ask God, so what do you want me to do with this? Then you don't get depressed. And that is the correct question. If a person finds that they can't do what most people can do, then the correct question is, well, in that case, 
What do you want me to do? God forbid a person is crippled, can't walk. Most people can walk. This person is crippled, can't walk. You should ask God, okay, if I'm not supposed to walk, what am I supposed to do? So what is my job? If you don't give me a hammer, then I can't be a carpenter. So what should I be? If you don't give me talent, then I can't be a musician. Then what should I be? Instead of saying, oh, why not? I want to be a musician. How come everybody else gets to be a musician? Why me? Instead, you're thinking, okay, so what's my job? Everybody's got a job. So if I'm not a carpenter and I'm not a musician, okay, then what? Tell me what my job is and I'll do it. That's a much healthier and much stronger response to one's own suffering. When you see somebody else's suffering, there is no good response because nothing will make it more acceptable. And so the only thing to do is to cry and to say, why can't this stop? So if you remember the story when Yosef met Binyamin, what did they do? They fell on each other's shoulders and cried. And what does Rashi say? Yosef was crying for Binyamin's problems and Binyamin was crying for Yosef's problems. If they knew their own problems, why weren't they crying for their own problems? The answer is you don't cry over your own problem. Your own problem you handle. Somebody else's problem you can't handle. So the least you can do is cry. There's another way of looking at it, even more positive. When you have a problem, the more serious the problem is, huh? the, more, the more paralyzing the problem is, the greater is the complement. First of all, God believes that you can handle it. It's a compliment. Secondly, God knows that you can fulfill your purpose in life in spite of all this handicap. That's a big compliment. So God doesn't give people more than they can handle. So if God gives you a little job, easy, nice, comfortable... That's not a compliment. Say, well, I can't expect too much from you, so just sit in the corner and be nice. Really true. Um, you know, he's saying that I always thought that um, like I was born in a rich house because I wouldn't have found uh, myself. I wouldn't have gotten this one But um, I'm not sure if it's true because I never want to Is that true? It's a good way of thinking. Is that about my soul? Does that mean I have a little soul? It's not your soul that's the problem. No, I'm so inspiring people, and I'm like, what happens? That's how you should think. There are some very difficult jobs that need to be done in this world. There's some really deep, dark, evil stuff 
that needs to be fixed. But who is God going to send to handle that deep, dark, evil stuff? A weak person? So if God gives you a bigger job, it should not, it should not feel like he's discriminating against you. He's complimenting you. Your job is to bring holiness wherever you are. Some people are in a pretty holy place to begin with, and bringing holiness there is no big, no big task. Some people find themselves in very unholy places, and they're supposed to bring holiness there. That's a challenge. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Because what is a challenge? A challenge means you're you're expected to be good in circumstances that are not good. That's a challenge. Suffering is a challenge because suffering generally is a darkness and it can drag you down. If it doesn't, then you're elevating the, the suffering or the darkness. So when a person finds themselves exposed to horrible things, it means you can handle it. People who are not exposed to those things, it's because they probably couldn't handle it. But what if you rather do the one that can handle it? Maybe. How do you? By asking God, so what do you want me to do? Why do we pray? Is it to get closer to God, to thank Him? What about someone who prays because their mother says so? They have no feelings and they don't understand what the words mean. Is it just the prayer that matters or is it the feeling and connection to God? And can I pray in my own words? Is that just like praying from a sinner? The original mitzvah to daven or to pray was if you have a problem, God says, if you have a problem or a need, come to me. That was what prayer was. It was on the occasion of a problem, you should turn to God and ask God to help you. Rabbi Akiva, or in the times of Rabbi Akiva, They first instituted this idea of praying every day, whether you have a problem or not, which is a whole different kind of prayer. So it's not if you have a problem. It's every day, three times a day, you daven whether you have a problem or not. So what is the point of that kind of prayer? Obviously, to get closer to God. But, if you were to use your own words three times a day, every day, you would run out of what to say. You don't have what to say every day, three times a day. You already said it. Unless you have so many problems, (laughs) which, you know, hopefully nobody has that. So, if you're going to daven three times a day, it can't be your own words. Because you don't have what to say every day. 
So on the occasion when you really do have what to say in your own words, then by all means, say it. But if you're going to daven every day, you need words. So what words are you going to say? If not your own. You're going to say the words that God wants to hear. Which means that there are two kinds of prayer. There's a prayer where you say what you need to say. Like you need to express yourself. So you, of course, use your own words because you want to express yourself. But then there's a time of prayer or a kind of prayer where you say the words that God wants to hear. Just like in, in, a, in, a, in a friendship or in a marriage. There are times you say what you want to say because you want to be heard. And then there are times you say what your husband or what your friend want, likes to hear. So if you, if you never say what the other person likes to hear because you don't feel a need to say it, then you're not a friend. And you're certainly not a spouse. So when a woman, when a wife says, how come you don't say I love you? And the husband says, what do I need to say it for? I've already told you. I told you, uh, what, three years ago? So you know. I don't feel a need to say it. The wife says, but I feel a need to hear it. So should he say it or not? But it's not his words. So there's a time when you say your own words because that expresses you. And there are times you say the words somebody else wants to hear because that works for them. When you daven, you're basically saying the words God wants to hear. And therefore, what should you be thinking? What should, what should your intentions or your kavana be? Your kavana should be, I'm saying what you want to hear. I hope I'm saying it right. That's the kavana. Not, I need this, I need that, give me this, give me that. No. These are the words you asked me to say, so I'm saying them, and I hope I'm saying them right. And that's what we say at the beginning of the Amida. Right? What are the words we say before we start the Amida? Hmm? We're asking God to put words into our mouth. Not to have our own words. Why? Because we want to say what works for Him. So it's like saying, tell me what you want to hear and I will say it. Because it works for you. Doesn't work for me? So what? This is not about me. So that's what davening three times a day means.